This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, April 5th, 2012. I'm Caleb Brown. The coalition that President Obama and other Democrats assembled for the 2008 election collapsed rather quickly. Sean Trendy says he has an explanation. He's the author of the new book, The Lost Majority, Why the Future of Government is Up for Grabs and Who Will Take It. He spoke at the Cato Institute yesterday. The story is that Barack Obama redrew the map and had a broad new coalition that would enable the Democrats to finally overcome the Republican realignment that had occurred in 1968 or 1980. But as I looked at the data, something struck, jumped out at me, and it struck me that Barack Obama did not have a new map at all, and that there was no new coalition that had responded to his message of hope and change. In fact, Barack Obama's map looked a whole lot like Bill Clinton's map in 1996. And you can see in these maps, uh, I've made it so that uh, as a state goes more for Barack Obama, it becomes a little bluer. As it goes more heavily for Clinton, it becomes a little redder. And there are some differences, but it is at its essences, at its essence, the same map in 2008 as it was in 1996. In fact, from 1996 to 2008, only three states moved more than five points towards the Democrats, Vermont, Nevada, and Hawaii. The biggest changes in the maps actually were losses for the Democrats. Arizona, Alabama, Kentucky, Tennessee, Wyoming, Oklahoma, West Virginia, Louisiana, and Arkansas all moved five points or more away for the Democrats. In other words, Barack Obama did not build the Democratic co- a new Democratic coalition in 2008. What he did was he took the coalition that Bill Clinton had built in 1996, and he narrowed it. And the most important way he narrowed it is, are those states in the middle of the country around the Ohio and, and Mississippi River, what I call Greater Appalachia, these states that were settled by Scots-Irish, had remained loyal to the Democratic Party even after the rest of the South had moved away from the Democratic Party during the 60s and 70s, but finally during the 2000s began moving towards the Republicans and moved big time towards the Republicans in 2008. Counties that Bill Clinton had carried in Kentucky by as many as 45 points went Republican in 2008, some of them for the first time in history. Not County Kentucky went Republican for the first time since it had voted for Lewis Cass, who was a Whig, in 1848. Now, to be sure, Barack Obama won about the same percentage of the vote as Bill Clinton had won in 1996. So if, if he's losing people in Appalachia and in the, in the Highlands South, Something has to have moved towards him, and there were, what he did was he took Bill Clinton's coalition of, Bill Clinton had Appalachians and white working class voters, suburbanites, and then the traditional Democratic base among urban liberals and minorities. Barack Obama lost that Appalachian component, but he went deeper than Bill Clinton among suburbanites and among minorities. And so what you see is some of these states, like California, move a couple points towards the Democratic Party, but it does it in a lot of states. So you see a little bit more bluing on the West Coast. You see a little bit more bluing in Maryland with uh, Baltimore and the DC suburbs. You see a little bit more bluing in Delaware uh, and in Illinois. Now, you say, well, that's a fair trade-off, right? He loses one group. He goes deeper in other groups. It ends up being an eight-point win. The problem is that if you have a narrower coalition, 
you have less room for error. And the analogy I use is if there's two group, if there's three groups in your coalition, you were at 100%, and then you lose all your support among one group, you're at 66% still. If you only have two groups at your, in your coalition, and you start out with 100%, you lose among one group, you're down to 50% of the overall vote. And this is especially important in congressional elections where, because of how congressional districts are uh, set up in this country with a broad geographic diversity, if you do not have a broad coalition, uh, you really risk a debacle. And to engage in a little bit of obvious foreshadowing, three Democratic senators hailed from these states in greater Appalachia. Even after excluding minority-majority districts, 15 Democratic congressmen came from these states. Democrats controlled half the governorships, 11 of the 16 state houses. So if these states began abandoning the Democrats at the national level, it presents a huge problem for the party. Anyway, so I kind of, the book was originally going to be called Big Red Rebound, Why the Republicans Will Be Back in Charge Sooner Than You Think. And it would have been really neat if that had sold because it would have been a great prediction. Uh, but perhaps unsurprisingly, New York book agents or book uh, publishers just didn't want to hear it. They thought this was a broad new majority uh, and that nothing was going to uh, mess that up for the Democrats. So after the 2009 elections, where Bob McDonnell you know, wins by the same margin that George Allen had won in 1993, so maybe Virginia hasn't swung that heavily towards the Democrats. New Jersey elects the most conservative Republican governor probably in its history. We revisited the books and uh, they said, well, no, this is just a fluke. These are state elections. Barack Obama has a broad new majority and nothing's going to mess that up. Um, and so we had to wait for the 2010 elections to occur, and of course, it turned out to be a debacle for the Democrats. Um, the problem at that point, the New York publishers were now interested, uh, but you couldn't write a book saying why the Republicans will be back in charge sooner than you think, um, because it had already happened. <laughs> so what I had to do, and I'm actually glad, in a way I'm glad, it, the book is a better book now because of what happened. It's not as sexy of a book. Um, but what it caused me to do was go back and not just focus on the 2008, 2009, 2010 elections, but take a broader look at this whole idea that there can be these critical elections that completely redraw the map and usher in these permanent majorities. And what I found is that, for example, FDR's majority, uh, he wins in 32, has a big win in 36, but he has a big loss in 1938 and the New Deal grinds to a halt. A large portion of it is actually repealed uh, 1938 to 1945 during World War II, uh, and no new, new major New Deal initiatives pass until 1964. Um, FDR's coalition really came apart in 1938 and never truly reformed. The election of 1964 is really more of a foreshadowing of Bill Clinton's coalition than it was hearkening back to FDR's coalition. And so the analogy I like to use is this, coin flips. There have been 40 elections since the Republicans first ran a candidate in 1856 at the presidential level. And if you cast an evenly weighted coin, and I don't know why political scientists always feel the need to clarify that it's an evenly weighted coin, but they do. Cast an over evenly weighted coin uh, 40 times, you would expect to see 20 instances of either two heads or two tails in a row. And sure enough, if you take it back to 1856 and look at the presidential elections, there are 23 in 22 instances of either the Republicans or the Democrats winning two races in a row. If Barack Obama's reelected, it'll be 23. 
And you can, you can go down the line. We'd expect to see three or two instances of five elections in a row. And indeed, we have three instances of five elections, one by either party in a row. One run of six, and we see one run of six, the Republicans from 1860 uh, to 1884. So my thesis is that this realignment stuff is a bunch of garbage to be quite blunt, that elections are really responses to short-term inputs, and that coalitions can change very rapidly depending on the choices of the party. Now, I don't believe elections are purely determined by chance. It's just because parties tend to choose poorly frequently and can only cater to one or two uh, portions of the coalition that puts them into power once they are in power and have to start picking and choosing on what's they're going to do what they're going to do their coalitions will wrap tend to rapidly fall apart uh, and the other party will be positioned to take advantage just as we saw with the Democrats in 2009 and 2010 there was no way that the Democrats were going to be able to implement agenda an agenda that appealed to all portions of their coalitions because the interests of minority groups of urban liberals of upper middle class suburbanites, of white working class voters, are not always aligned. And so what you saw once the Democrats came into power was they had to choose what type of agenda they wanted. And so the first thing that they choose is the stimulus bill. Now, I'm not interested in the debate of whether, on whether the stimulus was the right thing or the wrong thing to do. The fact of the matter was, it was not something that moderate suburbanites were interested in because it was massive, massive deficit spending, and moderate suburbanites don't like deficit spending. Now, the balanced budget of the Clinton years is what had brought these suburbanites into the Democratic coalition in the first place. It was the New Democrats, if you'll recall. Barack Obama did not govern like a New Democrat, and so he began to lose portions of his coalition. What happens after the stimulus? We have the cap-and-trade bill. Again, not something that moderate suburbanites are going to be particularly interested in, even less so the white working class voters who depend on a lot of these energy jobs. After that, the health care bill. Again, a massive spending bill that, although paid for, was not the gradualism that came to mark Bill Clinton's term after the 1994 debacle. And so we return to this idea. John Judas and Rui Tashara had written an, a brilliant book in 2002 called The Emerging Democratic Majority. And the thesis of the book, remember this is shortly after Clinton leaves office, is that the Democrats had discovered this new uh, philosophy. Uh, they called it progressive centrism that emerges in Bill Clinton's term. Uh, and they say that if you have this progressive centrism, you can keep this coalition together. And in theory, they're probably correct. But the problem is, once the Democrats get into power, and the same thing is true of the Republican Party, but once either party gets into power, it's very difficult to keep a centrist agenda going. In the Democratic Party, this is especially true when your house is run by Nancy Pelosi and John Conyers and Henry Waxman and, and Barney Frank. The tendency of the parties is to move towards the interest groups that hold the commanding heights of their party, and it makes it very difficult to hold the center. And that's exactly what happens uh, in, Bill Clinton, in Barack Obama's first term. Sean Trendy is author of The Lost Majority, Why the Future of Government is Up for Grabs and Who Will Take It. You can watch the full book for him at Cato.org.